Welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast series. Very happy to have with me today as my guest, uh, Dr. George Bernutian. He's been a professor of history at Iona College for uh, many years. And uh, I want to welcome you to the program, George. Thank you. It's very nice to be on your program. And uh, Dr. Bernutian has been teaching, uh, and you could probably correct me, but I think you've been teaching for uh, over 45 years. Is that right? Yes, exactly. It's 45 years I've been teaching Iranian, Armenian, and Russian history. And uh, we have a kind of commonality. We both went to UCLA, and you were among the first uh, to get, I believe, the PhD in Armenian history. Isn't that right? Yes, that's correct. And uh, tell us a little bit about how uh, you got involved in what, what made you want to decide to pursue a, a PhD in Armenian history back, uh, you know, in an early period in, in Armenian studies in the United States. Well, it was really uh, kind of an accident. I was not even interested in Armenian history because uh, I was really started using Iranian and Russian history at UCLA because, uh, you know, I know Persian very well, and I'm from Iran, and I know Russian fluently. And then, uh, for some reason, uh, since I was working full-time, I needed to take classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays only. And the Tuesday and Thursday class that fit my schedule was Richard Hovhannesian's History of Armenia. Mm. (laughs) And so I took it, and I liked it very much, and he was energetic, and he was very engaging. And so slowly between that and the Iranian history, I formed a bond. And it just continued after that. And then, of course, a year a year or two after, I went to Armenia for the first time. This is early, before people started going to Armenia. This is 1972, actually 71, 72. I had gone to the Soviet Union in 68, but I had gone to Azerbaijan and Georgia and Russia, not to Armenia. But in 72, I went to Armenia, and that really made the difference. You've been to Armenia, you know, you've taken students there. Once you go there, you suddenly realize how different it is from the diaspora. And when you uh, went there in 1972, of course, that was the peak uh, not the peak, but it was certainly a period when Armenians were doing well in the Soviet Union. Uh, oh, how- yes. It was the golden age, as yeah. they call it, the golden age of Armenia. You know, it was a good time. Armenians were doing very well. And so I really enjoyed it so much that when I came back, I immediately uh, started. I got my um, I got my orals done in 73 early. And then uh, with Nina Garsoyan's help and Richard Hovhannessian's help, I got one of the few IREXs. I was the second IREX student. The first one was Ron Suni, who went to Georgia. I was the first IREX student who went to Armenia from UCLA. IREX was the International Research Exchanges Board, and they paid all your way, airplane, pocket money, dormitory, everything. And I went to the Matanadaran, and I worked six months in the Matanadaran, uh, finding documents for my dissertation. When, when so you, it really mm-hmm. snowballed. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it started. It sounds like it started with uh, something that caught your interest. It became a, a passion. But I want to ask you: Did you did you ever? 
picture yourself as as becoming a professor when when you were doing it actually working on your doctorate what was your thoughts about the future well the doctorate yes before that no but once i started working on the doctorate i was really hoping to start teaching the problem was by the time i finished in 76 there really were no jobs in armenian studies there were only few chairs and they were already occupied by younger people i mean people who were not retiring and so there was nothing to do. So I, for many years, I taught, but I taught uh, part-time here and there, different places. I went to Columbia University. They invited me as a melon fellow, and I taught Armenian history there. But there were no full-time jobs, believe it or not, for eight years, even though I had a Ph.D., and my dissertation was very well received, and it was published right away, and it got not I'm not trying to say it, but it got fantastic reviews when it was published in 1982. I couldn't get a job. And the first job I got, full-time, I'm talking about full-time jobs, tenure-track full-time jobs, was at age 45 with already one or two children, one definitely, and that was Iona, the first one. There were no full-time jobs. I mean, I taught in many places but never as a full-timer. Iona was my first full-time job, and I've just retired there from after 31 years. And, you know, unfortunately at Iona, I did not teach Armenian history much because we don't have Armenian history. I taught Middle Eastern, Iranian, and Russian, and Soviet, but Iona gave me enough time to become visiting professor at Tufts University, at your university, actually, I have fond memories of Fresno when I was there, and we met all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, Fresno, uh, job, the Fresno class I taught, I taught at NYU, I taught at Columbia, I taught at University of Michigan, uh, sorry, uh, University of Connecticut. So I've taught Tufts. So I taught a lot of places, Armenian history. In some places, I originated the first courses. Not your university, but right. a few places. I was the one who started the Armenian Studies program, including Glendale College, which now Levon is running. I was the first one who started the Armenian program at uh, Glendale College. Well, you've had a, a passion for teaching, obviously. You've been do- doing it for, for so long now. But you've also been uh, prolific uh, doing research, and you've been very much involved in uh, writing about uh, Eastern Armenia. So tell us your interest how that developed as, a, as your field of research? Well, that's the, a very good question. The main reason it developed it is because I cannot read Turkish. And if you don't read Turkish or Arabic, you cannot do the Western Armenian diaspora or the Western Armenian history. But since I know Persian and Russian, and the Armenian I speak is the Armenian of the East, Eastern side, I had no problem. That was the, it was basically the languages that, that pushed me in that direction. And once you got into it, did it uh, become even more interesting for you? I mean, it became really, of course, led to a series of books, monographs on Karabakh, on Armenia, especially using uh, both Russian and Persian sources. Yes, that's what happened. It was luck, luck that I started it, and uh, also... It's possible that I am 
a person that cannot sit still. And so I kept on producing trap. Much of my work is translation of primary Armenian sources into English, and they've been used now. Thank God, I've seen more than six, seven hundred books. I've seen uh, citations of my work. I get emails from Japan, from Turkey, a lot from Turkey, asking me and thanking me for the material I have because some of the material has a lot of information on the Ottoman Empire too. And so that basically turned out, except I've now stopped doing that. In the last few books, it's, I just finished one book, which I'm waiting for from uh, one publisher or two to tell me if they accept it or not. And this is why I consider it my magnum opus. I've gathered many years' material, and that's the military, military history of the Russo-Iranian Wars of the 19th century, military history, mm. has never been done. And so when I mean military history, I mean day by day, month by month, and year by year, how Russian military came and took over what became present-day Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Armenia. So you're really talking the early 19th century then? Is, is early that, 19th century. Yeah, early 19th century. I found material in the Russian archives. I have the official military records of the generals, of the colonels, the kind of armies they have, the number of men, the kind of guns, you name it. <laughs> That's an interesting. How did you, how did you ever uh, learn Russian? Where, why, did, why was Russian such an important language for you, meaning uh, your knowledge? We spoke Russian at home, very much like Ron Suni and, other, and Nina Garsoyan. Russian was the language. My father was a Russian-Armenian. So he spoke Russian. He was Armenian, but his Russian was much better than Armenian. And, and so we spoke Russian at home. And where did he come from? Where, where, what part of Armenia? Baku. Baku. Believe it or not, my father was born in Baku. Ah. But in Baku, the Armenians only spoke Russian. They did not go to Armenian school. They were very Russianized. And he spoke Russian. And so did he have roots in Karabakh? Because many of the Armenians... No, no, Baku, no roots in Karabakh. None. Baku, the entire family, except for one person, moved to Iran during Stalin's period. And uh, he grew up in Iran, I mean, but he never learned Iran Persian. He spoke it, but he never learned how to read and write it. He considered himself really very cosmopolitan Russian, so which he... is very interesting. Yeah, and, uh, it is. And so we spoke Russian at home, and then, of course, I went to Russia a lot, quite a lot in the Soviet Union, almost once every year in the old days. And then I loved the Russian culture and Russian literature, and I started reading it. And the more you read it, the more you become fluent. That's basically it. But your, your father then, your family then moved uh, from Baku uh, to Persia? After... Yeah, to Iran, yes, uh -huh. in the 1930s. 1930. Wow, that's that's interesting. And were they able because to? Because my grandfather, for some reason, I never found out. This is the problem. I always I advise your listeners: if your grandparents are alive, get the information now. Because when they are gone, you will not be able. Stupidly, I did not get the information. All I know is my grandfather somehow managed to get an Iranian citizenship in in Soviet Union. How he got it, I have no idea. So when Stalin came around, he told the Iranian citizens, Armenians and others, either stay here in Russia and give up your citizenship, or you are driven out and go back to Iran. 
So they were basically driven out from Baku to Iran. It's a fascinating story. I don't think I've ever heard uh, someone... Yeah, I don't know. There were quite a few of those. And I don't know. You see, this is the problem. And my grandmother was from Ganja, Kirovabad. Mm -hmm. Ganja, which is in Azerbaijan, and she was also from there. I'm now, after finished this book, I'm now working on the on the Elizabeth Paul province, which Ganja falls into it, and Karabakh falls into it, in 1908. Wow. I have official records of all the villages, how many Armenians, how many Tatars, Turks, what kind of economy they had. And I did that also for the Yerevan province, which has been published by Rutledge in London. That got very good results. I've lectured on that. Well, you were so you were born in Isfahan. Isfahan is one of the older Armenian communities yes. in Iran. Yes. Did, what was the community like when you were growing up? Well, I was just born there. A few years after we moved, I was a very young boy when we moved to Tehran. Uh huh. And then so I really was raised in Tehran. So how was Tehran? I, I just was Tehran was a fantastic. I mean, when I was growing up during the Shah period, there were three hundred fifty to four hundred thousand Armenians. Armenians were very, very active in Iran. Everybody loved them. We were in forefront of the arts, of the opera, of the ballet company. Everything was in Armenian hands, the f photography, movies. But then, of course, um, now and all the liquor stores and all the pork processing plants were in Armenian hands. After the revolution, of course, all the pork, pork and all the sausage factories were closed. They are now in Los Angeles. And uh, all the liquor stores, all the liquor companies, Armenians made the beer and everything. That was illegal. So they all moved out. I think now maybe we have 40,000 Armenians out of 400,000. Can you believe that? That's amazing. But, but how did your family leave? Because you left before the revolution. Oh, I left because we, uh, we were one of the lower middle class. And the chances of us to grow anywhere there was very, very bad. Although I got a fantastic education, went to the best schools, but the chances of growing was not very high. There were two kinds of Armenians in Iran, actually three kinds. The peasants who lived in the villages of Isfahan, the lower middle class like us, and the upper classes who had their own businesses and major companies like beer companies and uh, et cetera, et cetera. They were very rich. We re my mother realized that I'm not, we're not going to get anywhere there. I mean, the worst, the best I could get was a kind of a small job because only Muslims could get government jobs and only Muslims could rise in military, even during the Shah. And only Muslims could become heads of departments or heads of the high schools. So the avenues were really, they were not discriminating against us. That's the, that was the law. And so they were very nice to us. Shah really liked the Armenians. But my mother realized the chances of growth for us is not good. So in 1964, we legally immigrated to Los Angeles. So you, that's, that's quite early, yeah, the 1960s, because, again, uh, there must have been a very small Iranian-Armenian... Uh... Oh, small any Armenian. I mean, all yeah. my friends now were... They, it was the same time that Armenians had come from Lebanon. A few of them came from Lebanon and Syria mm -hmm. because of the problems in Lebanon and Syria. And they, we all went to UCLA together. And there are still all of them in Los Angeles. Well, when you were in, in Iran, did you, did you learn English? Where did you learn English? Yes. 
I was very lucky. I went to a Catholic, a Catholic Don Bosco College, Don Bosco High School, Silesian Brothers, and they were fantastic. It was a very expensive, the best school. It was number one school in Iran, and the members of the Queen's family, Prime Minister's family, everybody practically was rich. I was the, one of the few poor ones who took the bus. Everybody came with the drivers, Mercedeses. But the school was top-notch, and the brothers there, and Irish brothers and other brothers, taught us English, the ones who wanted to learn, like me. And so I learned it so well that even before I came to the U.S., I passed my O-level, Cambridge O-level, in the British Embassy. That's great. Yeah, oh, yeah I was no problem. When I, went, when I came to the United States, I had no problem. The fourth day I was working in retail. That means I had to know English well enough to work with retail and work with customers, buying, selling. And so there was no problem. And did you did you feel like uh, you f you fit in with the with the Armenian community that was already in Los Angeles? How was that? How was that? I didn't get to know them until I came to UCLA, because we were again we had come. Uh, Armenian community was scattered in. There were very few for one in those 1964. There were not that many Armenians, but uh, until I came to UCLA in 1969. Then we had the Armenian club, of course. I was a member of the Armenian club. We met everybody. Uh, Avetis Sanjan especially was very helpful. God bless his soul. So Avetis was very helpful. Richard then, of course, came in, and, you know, it worked out in 69. But the first few years, I was just going to college and uh, working in a music store. As you know, I know classical music very well. And at the fourth day after my arrival in the U.S., I started working in the number one record store in Hollywood called Wallach's Music City. No longer exists, but that was a very famous store. And so I started working there for many years. And until I got my Ph.D., I continued working in classical music all the way till 1976 wow. for 12 years. I worked full-time as a manager of record stores while I was going to UCLA. <laughs> well, we were talking, uh, uh, I want to go back to kind of the Armenian studies, because uh, you have uh, a very unique perspective, because you have been in Armenian studies uh, over 40 years, 45 years, and you actually have met and worked with probably the pioneers in Armenian studies in uh, the United States, uh, the Richard Hovanesians, Avedi Sanjan, Nina Garsoyan, Robert Thompson. Um, and I'd like to ask you uh, if you can give me some perspective about when you started in Armenian studies, about the state of the field in a very broad sense, uh, and then how it's kind of developed in your, in your view. Well, when I started, as you said, there were very few. There were really only the chair. There was really the chair in Harvard, the program, not even a chariot at UC at Columbia, which was a program, because Garsoyan was the professor of Byzantine studies, although she did teach uh, Armenian. And then there was Avedis Sanjan, and then Richard had just arrived when I started, a year before I started. And uh, when, when the Society of Armenian Studies was formed in 1974, Sanjan and Richard and a few others encouraged us to join. So I, I was a member from year one from the Society of Armenian Studies. 
And so, and also the Society of Iranian Studies, I'm a member of year one, because they were the ones who started it both. Uh, Iranian was a year earlier, I think. And so there were just very few of us. And, you know, going for a Ph.D. program, uh, Sanjan had Gia, I think, and you, you came later, and then there was that other girl, woman from Armenia. Richard had a few students, myself, Libaridian, and uh, the ones who finished. He had a few other students, but they never finished. And so it was a small program. But uh, but the good thing about it, it was a small program, but Avetis and Richard and everybody else, because it was a new program, part of the Middle Eastern Studies at UCLA, which was under von Grunebaum, which they had brought, the whole program at UCLA was new. So they really nurtured us. We got scholarship, we got travel grants, we got money to go to conferences. This is from the university. Students, something that is very, nowadays is not that common. So it's really important that, that you get that support at that, at that point in your career, right? To get the, the support from the, the chair or from the, from the department. Right? Yeah, that's why I give so much kudos to your program. Not because I, of course, I like you, but not to plug your program. But you have done an amazing job by bringing the Armenian studies. They don't have to be majors, but at least they learned about their history, language, and culture and the programs in Armenia. So you are doing, you are helping too. You are giving scholarships, you are giving money, you are giving travel grants. Without that, it won't work. Okay, I mean, the people who are listening, it's very, very important to support the Armenian programs. Not, I don't need it anymore. I'm retired. But the younger people, it's extremely important to support the program because the result can make a big difference. Yeah, thank you very much. But when you, were, when you started then, I, I mean, I would dare say that Armenian studies was uh, maybe a marginal field. I mean, only on the margins of yes. uh, of larger fields. And could you situate that? Where, where was Armenian studies? In, in those it was days? marginal. That's why I also majored in Iranian and Russian history. It was because uh, mm-hmm. it was marginal. So it's it's some people say Armenian studies is part of the uh, Middle Eastern world. Some people say it's part of, the, but it's everything, isn't it? Actually. Armenian studies is everything. It depends which part of Armenian studies you touch. If you want to work with Kilikia, you have to know European history, you have to know Latin, you have to know medieval French. Okay, otherwise you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are doing in Caucasus, you have to know Azeri, you have to know Armenian and Russian and Iranian. I mean, if you want to do the Ottoman side, you have to know Ottoman Turkish and modern Turkish. I mean, it's Armenian studies, Armenia, because Armenian studies is very much like the Jewish studies. We've been scattered throughout the world, unless you do the ancient Armenian history, then you still need Greek and you need Latin. But after medieval times, Armenia is scattered. So it depends. If you want to do Armenians in Egypt, which was a major community, you have to start knowing Arabic. You have to do, this is the problem. Armenian studies is not something that you can go into it by saying, well, I'm in Armenian studies. Which Armenian studies? 
On top of that, there's Armenian art, there's Armenian literature, there's Armenian literature before the modern time, there's Armenian literature in modern time. I mean, you can go in so many areas. That's why it's also very difficult to teach Armenian history. You have taught it, I have taught it. You realize that you have to make it in a way that the students can understand where Armenia fits in the world civilization. That's the way I've been teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very, and my that's book, very which I'm sure you know, The Concise History of the Armenian People, I have written it not as Armenian history, but as Armenian people in conjunction in world history. That's the only way you can do it. Well, let's talk a little bit about the the book, because I think it's a significant contribution you've made. Uh, Really, there has been no... uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, there were no general textbooks of Armenian history. Today, there may be a few uh, books about Armenian history and one uh, edited volume uh, by Professor Hovanisian. But you you wrote the the concise history of the Armenian people uh, with the intention of uh, writing a general history. Tell us a little bit about the background. And how did you? What did you look for as the audience? What was your audience? What, what did you have in when mind? When the audience came, the lesson came from the classes at Richard's, Richard's classes. Richard always lamented that we don't have a book. We had the Jacques de Morgan book, which stopped at uh, 11th century. That's all we had. Then we had the other book that was translated from French, but it was also patchy. So what Richard had to do is he had to Xerox copies and give it to us. We had no textbook. There was a Kurkjan one, but that was really not good. That was really very uh, inadequate. Not that there's anything wrong against Kurkjan, but, you know, it was mostly from Jacques de Morgan's book with some additions. So we didn't have it. So when I started teaching Armenian history at Columbia, when I came to Columbia after I got my PhD, I had a big problem. I didn't know what to do. I kept on using what Richard did, Xerox this, Xerox that. Then Avetis at first decided, Avetis and Richard both decided to have a, a companion, a volume of different authors. Avetis has never came out, unfortunately, although I wrote two chap- a chapter there, but it has never been published. But then Richard, Richard came out, and I wrote a chapter there, and Richard is very good. The problem, not that there's anything wrong with Richards, but volume one is mostly Garsoyan. And volume one is extremely, it's wonderful, superb work, but it's very difficult for first or second year college students. It's really for graduate students. So students could not use it. And even before that came out, mine was the first. In 1993, I decided to do it, to do a regular book on regular Armenian history as it fits with the history of the world, because I was also very angry. I used to teach history of the world. You know, you, you know that. In the universities, they, they make you teach Western civilization. I would get a volume of Western civilization as a good Armenian. Some of your listeners are laughing. I would immediately go to the index to see if Armenia was mentioned. That's a typical Armenian thing to do. I would realize... Either Armenia was not mentioned at all, at all, or mentioned a little bit in the Soviet part. No genocide, nothing. So I got really angry. I said, I mean, these Armenians, I mean, we're not the greatest or the most important people, but 
they had pages and pages on the Mongols, on Tamar Lane, the assassins, the killers that killed millions of people, and nothing about the Armenians. So I said, look, I have to write a book that at least college students and high school, 11th and 12th grade students can use. And that's what I started writing. And the book. I wrote it uh-huh. first in two small volumes, then I enlarged it, and finally it came out in a big 450-page uh, concise history, and it was, it's already been reprinted six times. 10,000 copies have been sold in English. I think it's number one for history books. That's the only other book that has beaten this is the Armenian cookbook. Uh, so it's printed six times, and now I'm happy to say it's been translated into Russian, into Armenian, into Arabic, into Spanish, into Turkish, and into Japanese, and into Persian. Seven languages it's been translated, and the Turkish edition is sold out. It was printed in Istanbul. They didn't change anything. The Spanish one is sold out. They are planning to reprint it. The Russian one is sold out. It's going to be reprinted at the end of this year in Moscow. What else? So it, it did okay. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I wanted to ask you about that, and you, and you, you mentioned about the translations, which to me are fascinating. Uh, what do you see as the interest, for instance, in Japanese? Why would, why would the Japanese be so interested in Armenian history? I was surprised too, but you'd be amazing. In my conferences, that I go to my Iranian conferences and Middle Eastern conferences, Japanese students are really interested in the Middle East in Armenia, in Georgia, and in Iran, and they have learned the languages. I met one Japanese who spoke Yerevani Armenian fluently, and he works, he works in the Armenian embassy in Tokyo, and he was the one who met me, and he had used my book, and he asked my permission to translate it. I gave the, by the way, all the translations I've given free of charge. I have not taken a penny. I've given them free. I said, you translate it, you sell it, whatever you want to do, as long as it disseminates the Armenian information around the world. I did not get one red cent from any of these books, and I don't need, I don't want it. Well, you you, so, you uh, also said you got it translated into Turkish. Was What's been the general reaction in Turkey? Have, have you very got- well, it's sold out. Well, the translator in Turkish was a Turk and an Armenian. But the, uh, both but, of them, with all the maps. With the genocide, the right? Empire. I, mean, I can't believe it. Yeah, you talk about the genocide, you talk yes, about everything. Yes, yes, it's there. Yeah. I have a copy. Do you now, have... My Turkish is not very good, but I understood, I understood enough. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it, what it did is to really popularize uh, Armenian history, because if you multiply that, the numbers, you know, multiply by 10 or factors of 10 or 20 people, reading each copy, it's, it becomes a very large number. Of it people. is a large number. And, you know, uh, between you and us, I know the Turkish government has been nasty and they are not accepting. But in the last 10 years, last 10, 15 years, a, a good number of young Turkish scholars, quietly or even openly, are talking about this issue. It's no longer uh, the way the old group was. And you know, Taner Akcham is not the only one. There are many others, Fatima Gökçek, a few Mm -hmm. others, that have been examining the genocide, not necessarily as we wanted, but at least they see that there was a problem. (laughs) 
And you you used to go to the uh, Mesa meetings, Middle East Studies meetings, when uh, there were these tremendous, I'll call them, uh, I don't know, verbal battles over the, the genocide at panels, yes, right? Yes, because there were those in the old days, these were um, purposely sent to to egg Richard, and Richard would answer them very calmly. And we were, and we would, a few of us would got angry, but generally, they, they, their their position was very weak. But they were sent there on purpose. But things are opening up. I think things are a little bit better than the. I'm not saying it's perfect, but compared to the old days, it's it's much better. At least the younger, some of the younger scholars, Turkish scholars are looking at this a little bit more objectively. And as you began to publish, you also got involved uh, as the general editor for the Armenian series at Mazda Press. Can you tell us a little bit about that series and how yes, many, how many yes, titles were that published? Was, that was a kind of a luck. I mean, I started it, and as you know, Richard has put his Armenian cities series in that, in that Mazda separate series. But Mazda was an Iranian guy who felt that uh, there is a place for these publications. And uh, good or bad, the reason I went with Mazda is because Mazda would bring the book out immediately, fast. I would have the book ready. I would give him the camera-ready copy. And in four weeks, the book was out. If I went to university presses, it will take two years to get a book out, sometimes three years. Yes, it will be produced nicer. It will be edited better. Mazda was not necessarily, he has no editor, so I had to do everything myself. But it would come out very fast. I had this notion that I have to bring this material fast enough, these translations, not for the Armenians, but for the non-Armenians. And it proved right, because recently... Six of these books have been translated into Persian, believe it or not, in Tehran, because they need these primary sources for Iranian history. Arakel of Tabriz, Zakaria of Kanaker talks about Shah Abbas II, Arakel talks about Shah Abbas I, uh, I mean, uh, Zakaria Fagulis talks about the silk trade from Iran through the Ottoman Empire to Europe. They didn't have any of this material. So now they're translating it. The Nader Shah period, the Armenian eyewitness accounts of Catholicos uh, Abraham of Crete, who was there in the coronation of Nader Shah, the only eyewitness account of the coronation of Nader Shah is an Armenian, not an Iranian. So the Iranians immediately translated this, and students are using it. So uh, during your career, over your 40 years of teaching, you've done a lot of travel, and I'm interested to know uh, how, you've, how you've tied in the travel to your teaching and tell us about the places you've been, because I don't know how many places you've been, but I, I would guess it's probably been to every continent at least uh, once. Yes, it's correct, including Antarctica. <laughs> uh, what happened is it was just... I enjoyed travel, and I realized that many of American students, my students, had not really seen the world. Maybe a few of them had gone to France or Italy and Florida for spring break, but they really haven't widened their horizon. I realized that when I was teaching, that how little they know 
about the rest of the world and how Rita, they don't even care. So I began started taking students abroad, and it became very big to the point that we ended up having 40 to 50 students. And we've been uh, to at least 125, 130 countries. I mean, places that usually students don't go, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, many times to China, uh, Amazon, Forest, you know, Machu Picchu, Galapagos Island, and are these, Antarctica. Are, were these all tied into your, your own classes or tied into... No, no, broader... they were open. They were just open for people who could afford it. They were not expensive because we got a large number and we went student class. And I'm still doing that. That hasn't changed. I was going to take 15 people to Armenia and Georgia this June, but the coronavirus stopped it. Mm -hmm. But in October, I have 20 people to Japan, all of Japan. Let's hope that will go. We don't know yet. And I'm still doing that. I mean, we, I enjoy that. Usually it's during when I'm not teaching. And uh, Eastern Europe. But one important thing that most of your listeners don't realize is that Poland, there is a big Polish Armenian studies in Poland, huge program. You met one of them in our last conference, Jacob, remember? Mm-hmm. He was there, he gave a paper. Poland, especially Krakow, Jagiellonian University, and Warsaw, has Polish museums, Armenian museums, I mean, in Poland, with Armenian manuscripts, Armenian paintings, because there was used to be, as you know, a huge Armenian community in Poland. And the numbers vary from 200,000 above, which later on they mostly became Catholic and assimilated. But there's a huge program of Armenian studies, and uh, I've been invited there, I've given lectures there, they just made me a member of the Academy of Sciences of the Poland and Jagiellonian University, but they are very, very active. I really didn't realize how active they were, and they have publications and journals and newspapers all about Armenia. And when you go on these trips, I, I think you're, you're pretty much the only guide, is that right, uh, for the yes, most part? Yes, yes, I don't take any guides. Yeah, I you mean, do Sometimes your own. we get a local guide, like in China, because you need the language. Right. But most of the time I do everything myself, yes. yes. I'm slowing down, though. No, not much. <laughs> <laughs> and I think uh, one of your really areas of interest has been in Asia, and in particularly looking at the Armenian communities in places like India, in Bangladesh, in Pakistan, let's say, uh, and all the way to China. Can you tell us a little bit about that, a little bit about those Armenian communities? Well, what happened is when I came to Colombia from UCLA in 1978 on a Mellon Fellowship, uh, I mean Colombia from UCLA after my Ph.D., Colombia had a fund and the fund was given for anybody, Armenian Studies had a fund, uh, to go and uh, examine, mainly photograph, the Armenian communities in far-out places. And I was lucky. I was young. I wasn't married. I was maybe, I should say, stupid. But I decided to go around the world in six months with a backpack and a camera which was not a very good idea, (laughs) because I started with Baghdad, Damascus, Aleppo, Greece, Egypt, all the Armenian communities and churches, and then India, Pakistan, and then all of India, 
and then Burma, there's an Armenian church in Burma, Bangladesh, you name it, all over the place, and came back. And these pictures are in my book, the book, uh, Concise History of the Armenian People. Many of the pictures are my own. And so I met some people. It was sad in many ways to see these Armenian churches, these humongous Armenian churches, like the one in Singapore and Bangladesh, huge property, magnificent buildings, and there is one, either no Armenians or the caretaker is a non-Armenian because there's nobody there. They open it once a year. The priest from Calcutta comes in, Echmiadzin, comes in and kind of uh, you know, gives a prayer there to keep it active. Once a year they show up, and then they go and the doors are locked. <laughs> so there was once this sort of thriving network, wasn't it, of yes, the 16th, 17th century? Yes, network that uh, Sebu Aslanian has written in mm-hmm. his Armenian trade, Armenian merchants. Most of All of these are from, uh, from Iran. These are Armenians of Jufa that went and established centers all the way to Hong Kong and China. What do you find so interesting there, for, just on a personal level, in terms of Asia, Thailand, China? What do you find that's different? that you like in, in those places? Well, the culture is very nice. First, I love the food. People are simple, and the nature is very beautiful. It's very green. Yes, it's humid, but it's a place to relax. People live, Asia, especially India, after the Western lifestyle of running, running, constantly running to get ahead, it's nice to go to a place that people can sit down and meditate Instead of worrying about what kind of a car they are driving, how many big houses they have, and what kind of designer clothing they are wearing, they are really interested in inner self. And, and wasn't that also true in Armenia in the Soviet times, I think? Yes, Armenia was like that in Soviet times. Yeah. How, you know, how? in a way, I kind of, I know it's almost sacrilegious to say, but I miss, I love Armenia presently. Of course, it's free and it's much better in many ways. But I miss the old Armenia when people read more books, when today you see all these books in the, in the Vernissage being sold. Yeah, most of the bookstores are closed. Things have changed. Of course, they had a lot of problems in the old days, too. Not that it was not ideal. But people had more time to relax and to think and to get together. Today, well, like everywhere else in the world, today people are running to get ahead. Well, you've, you've, how many times have you been to Armenia? Oh, God, I started in uh, Soviet Union in '68. And then almost once or twice every year all the way until the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh When the Soviet Union fell and then the Karabakh problem happened and then Armenia had no heat, uh, then the earthquake. I went twice during the earthquake for AGBU. I took material there. But after that, it became less and less. Yeah. After that, there was no need to go because all the other people were already going. You had programs. Michigan had programs. Everybody had programs. I used to take Armenian students before. I even took some from Fresno, Armenian students from Fresno, long before. I'm talking about 1980, 81. Right. 
Yeah, they were the ones who came. In those days, nobody was going because they were afraid it was communist movement, pa 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 pa. So I started taking groups long before. After that, it was not necessary because once it opened up, there was no need for me to take it. Anybody could go now. George, in the last few minutes, we're gonna. Uh, I, I want to just kind of turn it back to Armenian studies, and you've had a again a long career in Armenian studies. You've you've been involved in in all of the SAS and just knowing people. If if there were a young person today, maybe graduating from high school, and they came to you and said, you know, we're interested in studying Armenian studies, or I don't know, studying more about the Armenians, what would you say? What would you? What would you tell I them? would say two things. I, I say that to them when they ask me. It's not the first time. I say, first, learn languages and be passionate. Be passionate in your field because you may have to wait a year or two to get a permanent job until some of these people who are there now retire. As you know, Bardakjan was retired from Michigan. He just retired with me. So that position will be open, the literature position in Armenian literature in University of Michigan, probably. I don't know if they'll advertise it or not. But So you have to wait until some of these programs retire. Levon Marashlam probably will retire. He's already my, a little bit younger. But, you know, programs will open up, but they have to be ready. They have to know the languages. They have to be very serious. You you can't do it halfway, and you have to be passionate, and you have to realize that you may have to do another job for a while until something opens, but don't give it up. Continue, especially writing and publishing, so when something opens up, at least with your publications, you can get in. Very, very important. But yeah. it's tough. It's a tough field. Even Richard was at the end was telling people, "Don't go into the field unless you are hundred percent sure." Well, I think t- today you could say that about just about every field. I mean, yes. the, uh, linguistics yes. or literature. Yes. There's about every field. Yeah, there's uh, fifty, sixty people that apply for open uh, positions every every time. Oh yeah, a- I mean, for every position we have, I get hundred fifty applications with fantastic diplomas, fantastic publications. Right. It's tragic. Yeah. Well, Almost every, in the humanities, it's right. like that, in the humanities and social sciences. It's not like that in chemistry, in nuclear physics, in physics, in pharmaceuticals. There, there it's not as bad. Well, I want to end today by kind of going back to what we started to at the beginning. And you talked a little bit about your love of music. And I know that it's not only music that you love, but uh, literature, uh, theater, Food. Tell me how cinema, you, cinema. Cinema. I film. originally wanted to become a music and film major and literature. It had nothing to do with Armenian history. As I told you, it was a fluke. I ended up coming to UCLA and taking one course in Iranian and one course with Richard. Originally, I was at UCLA for comparative literature, cinema, and classical music. That's my love. <laughs> And and uh, tell us why that's so important. Why is it so important for people, just in general, young people, to to really get involved in things like that, in in film and cinema and all of that? Because it opens the whole world for you. You were just talking about the movie Ararat. Right. I mean, Egoyan's films. A film film can give a lot of material that a class. I cannot explain the genocide as well if I talk about it. 
but if I show it, it makes a big, big feeling. And the same thing with the music you said, the soundtrack, music, literature, when you read the 40 Days of Musadar, you know, literature, music, and film can complement. It's part of the living mechanism, and that's very important. So you have to combine it as part of the human experience, not necessarily history, but the human experience, extremely important. Well, it's been great talking to you today, George. It's been it's been very uh, good to talk to you to to hear your perspectives on, on Armenian studies and, and what you just said about students learning about the world and really the importance of that. I want to thank you again for joining me today. You are very welcome. Continue your good work. Thank you very much. Welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast series.